Hello, readers and writers. I am Anthony Elmana, also known as Professor Grandpa Tonio, the book guy and the writing guy. Welcome to Writers on Writing, my podcast series of conversations with great authors. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Melina Lewis, the author of the Libertalia trilogy, Lost Fortunes, Quest for Land, and The End of an Era. Tweens and teens, if you're looking for stories filled with lots of suspense, mystery, and intrigue involving a cast of unique, you know, I want to say, I want to say unique teen characters, but I also want to say distinctive because each one is so different. And I just love how you crafted that. Then you're going to enjoy every riveting adventure in the Libertalia trilogy. Melina's characters navigate typical challenges of teen life, friendship, crushes, school life, fears, uncertainty, self-acceptance, but they also find their way into an age-old age old family feud and a spellbinding ancient African legend. Melina is also the author of After You Died, her heartfelt adult novel in which she explores deep grief, enduring friendship and love, and the power of resilience and the reward of rewriting one's life. As noted on her website, Melina Lewis is, quote, a marketing and communication specialist by day, I love this, and by night, a writer. <laughs> that True is so story. <laughs> I love it. She lives in the seaside town of Fishhope, Cape Town, South Africa, with her husband and two children. So, Melina, thanks a lot for being here. I'm so I'm so glad you're joining me. I, you know, I've been I've been kind of prowling around your website and you know looking at some of your interviews, and so it's been it's such a pleasure to actually you know be here, see, see meeting you. I felt like I've met you before electronically, but this is. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that. I thought that um, for, for a lot of listeners to this podcast, I thought that uh, we should begin by, uh, with a, especially important among writers in our audience, our listeners, to know that your writing life must somehow align with your demanding professional career. And how, how are you doing that? You know, you've got two children, you're married, you're a full-time worker. <laughs> so how yeah. do you feel about it? Yeah. Oh, um, so at the moment, um, my my working life, you know, because I, I contract in, you know, in the marketing space. So, you know, sometimes you have more clients than others. And um, so at the moment, luckily, um, I do have, uh, you know, some nice clients. And so then writing kind of takes a little bit of a backseat. And so what I do is I wake up at 5 a.m., which I think it's quite hectic, but <laughs> I know like in the US, a lot of people like work like two jobs and work, work more than they sleep and all that kind of stuff. And so maybe for Americans, 5 a.m. isn't that early, but it's quite early. Um, and, um, and then I work for about an hour or so just writing. And then, um, and then, yeah, and then the day kicks in and it is kids and feeding and stuff. And then I start kind of working and then the the writing stuff kind of either plugs in at night or around or around work. And uh, because as a self-published author, one has to kind of 
generate everything oneself. But I make it sound like I do everything and I don't. I think that that's also not true because I have a nice team of people who help me. So I work with a fantastic designer and layout artist who like, you know, when it comes to putting the books together, I work with um, illustrators, especially in the Libertalia series. Uh, so, you know, that's a, a, a lovely treat to work with someone who can take the story in your mind and turn it into pictures on pages. And um, I work with, you know, editors and proofreaders. And so, so I work with a lot of people I hope and think are smarter than me uh, to help me bring this all together. Although I do the writing, the like when kind of bringing the whole book together, it, it feels like a, um, a collaboration, really. Wonderful. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. I think it's so important for people to hear this because self-publishing is sometimes uh, disregarded. And I think it's, be, as you well know, independent publishing and self-publishing are becoming much more um, acceptable and accepting, mm. you know? So well, well, about being a writer, I mean, I know you've had a career and then all of a sudden you became a writer. When did you think you wanted to be a writer? <laughs> so um, in truth, I think I wanted to be a writer when I was already a child. So about, oh, I would say 11, 12 years old, my folks had a one of the, an old typewriter, I know, sounds like I was born in the dark ages, but um, <laughs> they did have a typewriter with like the ribbon, you know, and then you'd like press the keys and they were so hard, they'd like almost break your fingers. And then the keys would like cross and, oh, you know, and the rib, oh, it was just a disaster. <laughs> yeah, and so it would take you like four hours to write three sentences. Anyways, but I loved like plonking out words on that thing. And I remember writing a story, I can't even remember what it was about, but I, I loved writing and I loved creating, but I am um, a terrible speller. And, you know, at school, that's you're marked on your spelling and all, all of those kinds of structural sentence things. And so I was like, oh, I can't be a writer. I can't do all the things that, you know, people who write are supposed to do. And so you kind of put that aside. And then much, much later, when my first, my adult book, when the story kind of came to me and sat in my head and just wouldn't leave. I had to kind of put pen to paper and I just kind of really just started writing. And, you know, I read a couple of books, I think, you know, Stephen King's on writing and mm -hmm. me, and she has also kind of produced a book about how she wrote and worked and all of that stuff. And the, I'd read that kind of stuff and just kind of plunked out the story. And, um, and that was in my late 30s. Of course, you know, I'm now 25. I'm not getting older. Um, but um, <laughs> of course, of course, who gets older? That's for other people. So it's just, it kind of came later. And then once I'd actually produced the book, I was like, oh, it's a book. And yeah, it kind of just went from there. But it was just something I felt the need, like this like had to do thing. Yeah, that's nice. The story stays there. You know, I mean, it, it, I like the way you put that. It doesn't go away, you know, and no. so we keep going back to it, um, you know, and, mm. I, and I, I, I love that about our about our lives as writers, you know, that in yeah. a way we're haunted by it. But uh, it's, it's the moment that we give ourselves the discipline, you know, and whatever it is we need with the inspiration, although that word is kind of people don't like that word very much because they, they think you'll sit around all day waiting for the inspiration, but I think we just get at it. After you died, 
is an adult novel and it's your first published book. How, how did that story come about? It came about where I was, um, I would run in the morning with a few, with three friends. So the four women and we would run through Fishhook where, where I live. And it's quite a quiet little seaside town. So, you know, classic kind of small town. You know, we'd sometimes run in the dark because it was winter and you kind of like run on the road because there's hardly any traffic. It's early and, you know, you just kind of get these like the street lights. You kind of run in between them. And I was like, wow, it's quite dangerous this running in the street. Anyway, you carry on. And then I heard a story um, in Johannesburg. A taxi had knocked over a woman runner and killed her accidentally one morning in the dark. And, I mean, and so that kind of story played into my mind. And I was like, wow, imagine that happened. Yeah, we're running in the road. Like someone could totally ride over one of us. And then kind of, <laughs> I have to think, you know, I know it sounds slightly macabre, but I am running and I, you know, I'm not the best runner. I'm more like a plodder. So this was quite a, <laughs> so you just kind of go with the story. And then I was like, wow. And then what would happen if one of us was killed? Like, what is that? mean in terms of the other people and how are their lives affected you know and and the person who is driving the car what would that mean and how would that affect their life and I think I was also at the time I'd been um, training as a uh, yoga teacher and so there was a lot of yoga philosophy that was going on in the background and very much about that thing that in life sometimes you're given a little shove uh, from the universe to, I almost want to say, to, to wake up and reassess your life. And sometimes it's in the form of a tragic event. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but quite often it is. It's that thing that's almost like shocks you out of your day-to-day -day grind where you kind of stand back and go, whoa, wait, actually, is this the life I want? Um, and so it was kind of that it kind of all played in together. And, um, and so that's when the idea came for this book. And I wanted to unpack everyone affected by the death of a person. So very early on in the book, um, the, you know, the character is killed um, because the book is very much about everyone else's life, what the impact of that death, how it affects them differently. And so each one acts out completely differently but they're all grieving in their own way. Right, yeah. and, and the thing that I kept reading about, that's why I'm, I'm really anxious to get a hold of this book, which I will do today, I promise, is this, okay. that you you also talk about the taxi driver. I mean, he's, he's a, you, you follow him because I mean, he didn't, it wasn't something he did intentionally, mm -mm. You know, but, uh, and, and, and the fact that he has his own problem, his own physical problem, does he not? Right, absolutely. So in the kind of in hitting the runner, he his taxi kind of spins out of control and he ends up losing a leg. Huh. And so um, he becomes disabled. And so that means he can't be a taxi driver again. And has he murdered her? So there's kind of like, you know, putting him in jail. And so kind of the awkwardness of his you know, his new body really and in his life and in his capabilities. And so I really wanted to explore kind of what that would be like, you know, to, to have something that is so fundamental to who you are and what you do taken away. And then how do you kind of rebuild yourself also with the knowledge that you killed someone by mistake? You know, I feel like that's such a heavy burden. 
that was that's that was so you just said something so important to me which i've been thinking about a lot lately which is the idea of re rewriting or reimagining our lives yes you know that uh, you know after something that sh shocks us um into a new reality <clears throat> you know, or something that we did so i think that that is, is such a a golden message if you can put it that way you know to to people who are either not only going through grief <clears throat> but are trying to reconstruct their lives after a divorce after the death of someone after just after covid absolutely really, i mean it's all you know so your characters are re reimagining their lives living you know and i just love that i think that my next question excuse me my next question has to do with you know what do you want us as your readers to gain from watching these people go through their grieving? Um, I suppose a sense of kind of like, well, you know, it's that tragedy of like, well, life goes on, you know? So you now have to push through your life, no matter <laughs> that someone you love or care about or know or have killed has gone. And so now how, how do you carry on with your day-to-day? -day? And so it's very much about kind of how we often just go on. We just carry on. And it's very Western, you know, like if you think of kind of older cultures where people would wear black and stay home and grieve for a period of time to allow that process to affect them and to pass through them and to, you know, and to really accept and acknowledge that someone had died and that it hurt and that it was very, very sad. And it's kind of like we almost in today's world want to shortcut that. And so we just go, oh, yes, very tragic and shove it aside, you know. And so I wanted to kind of like explore how it pops up, that grief pops up in different ways. And it, um, it'll often... Uh, I'm trying to think of a way of describing it, but but it it will show itself in different ways. People will act out. They'll go on a drinking binge, mm -hmm. or they will all of a sudden want to go and jump out of an airplane for entertainment. You know, so do different things, strange things that are maybe uncharacteristic because they're not. There's something that's inside them that they are not dealing with. You know, make rash decisions. So I suppose what I really wanted to show was that everybody acts out quite differently depending on where they come from. Um, but that grief is grief. It, it, it appears differently, but it is still very much there. And you kind of carry it around for a little while, you know, it, it hangs with you. It's a bit sticky and it doesn't necessarily just go away. You don't get over it. You know, it's, um, it sits with you. The book, as I say, is, is fictional. It's not meant as any kind of self-help or anything like that. But I suppose it's just to experience grief in a slightly kind of at distance um, level, but kind of acknowledge, oh, yeah, everyone does things differently, but they're all kind of feeling sad anyway. Yeah. So I suppose, yeah, and I just wanted to, to, to kind of go that journey with these characters. Well, it's, it's fantastic. I, I, I think that there's so many people you know, need to learn from this, you need to hear this. People can also get angry. You know, I've seen that, yeah. happen. you know, um, and they, you know, they put their fist through the wall. 
or something, you know, or beat somebody up or something, you know. So I mean, it's like it's uh, and and then the fact that you mentioned yoga, because that kind of is a leverage that helps us, you know, in our in our own spiritual growth, but also to start seeing things in different ways, you know, and uh, accepting in a different way and awakening uh, awakening in a different way. So it's it's I think it's all there. Uh, how powerful that is. Let, let's let's turn to uh, Libertalia. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, yes. Libertalia, Libertalia. Libertalia it's fun. Libertalia. It's like, like liberty. Yeah, oh, liberty. yes. Yeah. That's, I love that fact that, that li- the word liberty is in there, you know. Um, yeah. Let's say for tweens and teens, I'm going to quote a reviewer, and you responded to this uh, when I sent you the questions. The reviewer writes, the characters are diverse and strong, and we see them tackling a host of challenges with a plum. So I say to you, please respond. <laughs> <laughs> yes, shame. My poor characters, because I kind of do think of them as my four other children, uh, despite my two real life children who are like, you have imaginary children. That's so weird, mom. But the, 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 these four kids, I do put them through the mill but they are resilient and they are tough and they're robust and they lean on each other mm-hmm. and they grow together in a way that I almost kind of think, would they be able to grow in the way they have without each other? I don't know, maybe, but, but I think it's in the forming of those friendships in the acceptance of people who are different and um, they, they learn so much more about themselves also in relation to their friends. So, I, yeah, I would say, yes, shame. They do get shoved into some nasty situations, but they, um, they lean on each other. They kind of dig deep. They, le- they lean into their spiritual selves as well, especially Carabo. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and they come out. They do come out the other end. It's not to say that it's done. There's still lots of growing to do, as, but that's life, right? You keep on growing forever. So, um, yeah, I think they, they, they manage. They manage. I could put them through tougher stuff, actually. That gives me a good idea. <laughs> well, I mean, they, you know, as I, as I was reading, I, I just, you know, I, I, they reminded me so much of adolescents that I used to teach in high school here, you know, right. that, that are just so intense, you know, and it's really, and, you know, and the fact that right now they're not supposed to be cl- physically close to one another because I always, especially when I was working in the middle school, which is like eight to 12. Oh my Talk of, I mean, they're punching each other in the hallways. They're hugging each other at the door, et cetera. You know, and that's, that, they can't do that now. And so the frustration when I, the last time I went in there before COVID actually, but it was beginning to happen. I was uh, pr- presenting them with a, uh, some of the uh, the drafting that I did for Lucas and the Game of Chance, which is my my novel, or right, yeah, you could just tell there's so much there's so much physical tension, and they're looking out for each other and protecting each other. And then when they would get up and read some of their writing to me, they were like so attentive and wanting to be there for them. So for the the reader, you know, of the writing writing is it's it's magical in many ways. I mean, it's a world unto its own that we forget about. I mean, I'm an, I'm an old guy and I'm still relating to that by going into those schools and seeing these kids, you know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. um, I just, uh, I had a, <laughs> a young girl contacted me and she said, 
oh my goodness, I'm 13. And I like, this is so spot on. She says, you're like, it's like you're a 13 year old. And I was like, I think that's quite a cool compliment. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, oh, is that a problem that I can still think like a 13 year old? Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is that thing of like, even though you, you grow, you can always kind of pop back in and put your 13 year old shoes back on, you know, and, and kind of feel, allow yourself to feel what that felt like. And I mean, to walk what I what I would do in the middle school, which is a very large building with lots of classes changing and, you know, all that stuff. And I I just watch I would just watch them, you know, and that would be very important for me. I mean, if I if I ever wanted to create characters who are of that age, which in some sense, my character, Lucas, goes through that stage, you know, I mean, he's 18 right. years old when he gets married and, you know, I'm following him around and. I mean, I think hearing those voices and watching those kids relate to one another has been, you know, wonderful. I mean, that's a, it's a teacher who invites me back all the time. It, you know, it's a, if I want to share drafting with them and that kind of thing, it's just, it's a marvelous place. I was thinking about this, the free town called Libertalia. I think um, um, the American audience would really like to hear you talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a um, it's a town of legend, essentially, and it is on Madagascar. And Madagascar is sometimes called a continent, sometimes called an island. I'm never too sure which one it is. I think it's just a very big island. And, you know, just off the east coast of Africa, uh, beautiful in terms of beaches and you know has like an amazing biodiversity like has baobabs and you know we, we've all seen the the cartoon Madagascar you mm. know with the lemurs and and all of that kind of thing not the penguins I just have to say like penguins don't belong in Madagascar anyway um but but that's that's essentially Madagascar this beautiful beautiful island and so the town of Libertalia which was around I think you know, 14th to 16th century around there, when you had a lot of the colonialists, the Dutch and the British coming to the bottom of Africa. So around the Cape and, um, and up through Africa. So slave ships, um, they were coming and colonizing uh, Cape the, from Cape Town and up into kind of uh, Mozambique and all around those areas. And, and so there were all these ships that were moving with produce and um, that resulted in pirates. So they weren't just kind of pirates in the Caribbean. There were also pirates in other places that were being colonized because there was opportunity to board ships and steal stuff. And so um, what you had was pirates in and around, you know, the southern tip of Africa. And this free town of Libertalia was where they would kind of take their stash to. You know, no one was interested in having Madagascar. You know, the French only kind of colonized Madagascar much later. So they kind of had this free town of Libertalia and mm -hmm. the pirates would then bring their loot there. And they also would like, if they um, were the kind that would free slaves, they also took the slaves and freed them onto Madagascar, which I think was unpopulated before. So, so Libertalia is this kind of wild free town pirates, you know, you can just kind of, it, it, the imagery comes, comes together. So that's what Libertalia was about. It was about this 
libertarian environment, you know, sure they were all baddies, but it was a, a place of freedom. There were no kings or queens or anyone controlling it. That's, that's intriguing. To take your contemporary world into that is so exciting when I'm reading this because I mean, it's like some of those legends are also possible, you know what I mean? Like, you, you, know, you yeah, you can see some, even the nastiness or whatever was going on there was, the, the goal was for freedom. Totally. You know? Yeah, you know, and I, and I love the fact that there's, there, really there's no government, you know, no. so how, how do people carry on with the, mm. without government? I mean, that sounds like um, something that uh, people worry about all the time. No, I, I, <laughs> I love that, I love the concept and I, I love the roughness of it. The roughness of it, and then you've got your adolescence. The an, an African legend. Uh, tell us about the legend and what you hope to achieve by weaving it into the fabric of the story. Okay, so when I was creating the story, I was looking to kind of, you know, I wanted it to be a contemporary story, so kind of set in modern times. But then I also, so in looking for that, I was like, well, how do I make this interesting about Africa? And so then the idea of kind of, pirates in Africa came about and so then I you know found out about Libertalia mm -hmm. um, and then I was like okay cool so you know the kids in the book can be related to these pirates in some way or something so I was like I had that at the back of my mind and then I thought okay well if there's pirates there's like treasure you know so the two go hand in hand so I started looking for stories around treasure in Africa and I almost kind of self-doubted. I was like, oh, no, there's no such thing. And then I was like, oh, okay, quick Google search. And I was like, oh, oh there is actually yeah. treasure in Africa. Well, or at least fabled treasure or whatever you want to call it. I mean, we all know there's lots of treasure in the ground. That's what the mining companies do. Um, but essentially, yeah, we, I, I went and looked it up and I found out about this king called Lobengula, which um, might sound like quite a mouthful, uh, but he was a legendary king in what is modern day Zimbabwe today. And he was this, um, if you look up the pictures of him, he was cut this big fat, big fat king, you know, and he clearly enjoyed the good life. And he had um, diamonds and ivory and gold. And so, you know, there were old gold mines in Zimbabwe that, you know, there was kind of just ground mining, but there was plenty of it. There was the ivory, obviously, from the herds and herds of elephants. And then the diamonds were coming from um, Johannesburg and from Kimberley, um, because at that time, Cecil John Rhodes, who was British, um, you know, he was making sure that there was a lot of diamond mining going on. And so the diamond mines were, were also, they didn't, have ways to stop the people who worked in the mines from taking some diamonds with them. So, so yeah, so they would, so it was portrayed that Lobengula had this huge stash of gold and ivory and diamonds and that he was sitting on this in Zimbabwe. And you had Cecil John Rhodes, who was, had promised the Queens he would, he would paint Africa red from Cape to Cairo. Okay, so he was a classic colonialist. <laughs> We've had lots of interesting discussions in South Africa about him. His statue has been removed from various places. He was not a great guy. Yeah, I know, not a great guy. So basically he heard about this treasure 
that Lobangula was supposed to have. And he went marching up to um, what is today modern Zimbabwe. And he just walked in and totally burnt down Bulawayo. And all that was ever found after he'd kind of ruined it and burnt everything and put Lobangula into prison and all of that kind of stuff, all that was ever found of this alleged treasure was a tiny little silver elephant. That was all that he ever found because apparently Lobangula sent all his treasure with like three or five men and to go and hide the treasure. And when they came back, then he killed them. So the legend goes. And so the, the treasure was never, ever found if it ever existed. And, um, you know, it might've just been a good reason for Cecil John Rhodes to attack. So, but this little silver elephant was all that was ever found. And so I pulled that into the story. Mm-hmm. I made it gold, but it's, so there's all little bits of this legend kind of pulled into, into the first book that I really wanted to, and I managed to kind of bring the pirates in and how did they kind of get involved in this and then kind of then pulling that story, this historically made up story into kind of modern day and how does it appear and how does the story of old now affect these four teenagers? Like how are they, how do they, how does this even connect? So yeah. It It works so beautifully. I just love how you did that. Especially because I, my back, my background, I mean, or whatever you call that, I've loved traditional literature, let me put it that way, which would be legend and folktale, fairy tale, myth, you know, and so to see see you taking that and making it come alive in the contemporary world with these kids is just, or teens, is, um, is very valuable, uh, you know, so we can draw on history and the intrigue and, and see these young people interacting through it is, is, is remarkable. I mean, I'm so glad you pulled that off. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's a, the fabric is so tight. Tell us a little bit about some of the issues that your adolescents are pondering. I mean, I know that your your readers are going to be drawn into the mystery and suspense and all that you just described, which is so fascinating. But then you've got the contemporary teen. So tell us mm. a little bit about what you were doing there. Okay, so um, I kind of wanted to create a a world where young South African teens who are are all the same. The children's skin color are brown and white. And and I did that because I wanted to represent the kind of vision for what I think, you know, and what I want South Africa to look like, where racial demarcation no longer exists you know it was shoved down our throats during apartheid and so I wanted to kind of step away from that and rather just allow the individuals to show up as individuals and it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside so that was kind of one of the first things that I wanted to kind of get rid of whether people think that's flippant or not I don't know but but it's my vision for a better kind of world where we don't we don't have to have that kind of affecting how we look at each other. And so I um, so that was kind of the first thing. And then I wanted to bring in a little element of magic. And so 
I was like, oh, magic, you know, do we go kind of African folklore? There is a lot of kind of magic in African folklore. Um, and I thought, oh, what, what else could I do? And then I was like, I'm very drawn to um, what we call here Sangomas, uh, which would be like a traditional healer. And I am um, fascinated uh, by the work of the Sangoma. And, you know, you get uh, traditional healers are much more kind of medicine, and then some that are more specialized in kind of the spiritual realm, and some do both. But um, I, I had met while I was working with an NGO in Soweto, a few young girls who were called by their ancestors um, mm -hmm. to become Sangomas. And I was like, wow, you know, so young to have this huge kind of responsibility and to, to be called upon. So um, I can suppose I can liken it to like in Mulan, in the movie where she goes and speaks to her ancestors in, the, in kind of the family area. It's, it's very much like that where the ancestors come and they call you to, to become this spiritual healer. And so my character is just this lovely young girl, Karabo. And Karabo is first team hockey, uh, field hockey, and um, she's really smart. And she like she's out there doing her thing, living her best life. She goes to a private school, everything is dandy. And then, um, except her mom, this book does open with her mom forgetting to come and get her for the weekend. Anyway, but um, she she's just a normal teen. And then she gets this calling from her ancestors and she almost wants to like rebel against it she's like no I just want to do me and this huge calling and drive and then she slowly starts to figure out how to bring this into her modern world and I love that kind of the difficulty and the challenge and that might be one of those horrible challenges that I stuck my my characters in but I wanted her to kind of work with how do I bring all this spirituality, this magic, if you want to call it that, into everyday life. Like I still have to go to school. I still have to pass. I still have to study. Like mm -hmm. none of that's going away. Um, but how do I bring, incorporate all of this otherworldliness into my life? So, yeah. So for her, I, I um, so she got dumped with like the biggest load, I'm afraid, my my main character Caravo <laughs> she got she got it all um and then there's William and William he comes with a whole lot of luggage um in the sense that his father is a very mean man he's our baddie and uh William is almost like he's he almost lacks the ability to understand kindness and friendship and love because he has grown up in this dysfunctional family he doesn't really know how to relate to people and he's quite self-destructive and you know lacks to kind of act out and you know get attention in inappropriate ways and so he is our lost a little bit lost cause but through the three books we see him I think evolve the most so he's a very exciting character and I also had to have a character that was that kind of good looking bad boy a little bit messed up I think that was my like my teen you know heartthrob vibe so I, I pulled that in so my 13 year old self definitely got involved there and then um, I also then created Mzi and Mzi is short for Mzilikazi 
and like sidebar, just have to throw in the history because I'm a history nerd. But Mzilikazi was the general of Shaka Zulu. Um, I don't know if the Americans know about Shaka Zulu, but he was, we grew up with a TV series about him. Um, Shaka Zulu was the king of the Zulus and he was a brilliant war strategist. He came up with fighting strategies. It was called the bull's horn. And we learned all about this at school. He was amazing for his time. He made his warriors run on coals and on thorns so that they had the hardest feet and they could go anywhere. And they just took out everything. And he created this enormous Zulu kingdom. Mm -hmm. So his general was Mzilikazi. And Mzilikazi was the person who went up to Zimbabwe and started. He was the father of... Lobengula. I've probably confused the living daylights out of everybody right now. Anyway, it makes perfect sense in my head. But just to know that Mzi is now this person who comes from this amazing traditional family, you know, Zulu kings. And he's amazing in himself. He's lovely, he's kind, he's gentle, he, but he's sporty, but he, you know, we've kind of modernized him. So he's not, you know, a Zulu warrior. He is a fantastic rugby player. So our rugby equates to kind of your football in terms of like, it's the thing, you know, it takes over the school. It's everyone wants to like be at the game. Um, and so, so he's the captain of the team. He's the head boy at the school, um, but he's still a nice guy, but he's kind of burdened by the responsibility. You know, he feels like he has to always present correctly. And so, so he struggles with that thing of being that ace student but he also just wants to be like a kid. He needs to live up to a lot of stuff. So I kind of stuck him in that. And then I've got Isla, who is at the, at the outset, she just looks like, oh, you know, Carabo's mate. But she's really, she's a lot more. She's very much her own person. And she very much likes, you know, has a vision. She knows what she wants. But when it comes to boys, she's just, all she sees is a Z and she's a bit ditzy on that front, but also smart, driven, and she kind of keeps Carabo in line, actually, a lot of the time. You know, she's that friend that's always, uh, come on, wake up, pull your socks up, let's go, exactly. let's go. I'm sorry if I've blabbed on about my characters too much. But, no, 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 um, no, I'm so yeah. glad you're doing, no, I'm so glad you're doing this. Well, first of all, the pronunciation, and then secondly, the fact that they're so distinct and the and you talked about this in an interview when you were uh, interviewed on TV, because I watched that interview, which I, I, I loved. And you talked a lot about drawing, drawing on African history, African legend, and African character, and that type of thing. And that I'm so glad you did that. And I think that because in, in the States, we can remember apartheid. Of course, yep. we can. you're drawing out of that. You know, and I think it's such a fascinating, I'm not going to say a political, it's an artistic issue that you create to weave some of Africa into these gorgeous stories. And these characters, I mean, where you're describing, I and mean, I'm looking at their names right now on, on my notes here, and um, I, I, each of them, it's, they're so distinct, but they also carry burdens. Carabo, is that the way you say her name? Carabo? Great. Yes. I did it. I did it. And Carabo, <laughs> when, when she becomes that mystic, in a sense, yes. drawing away from it, like as a, a typical, but they're, you know, 
I was thinking that uh, as I was weaving my way through through the trilogy is that we've got a lot of magical realism here, mm. you know, and and that's that's always fascinated readers, you know, to be able to slip into inside that magical world that in a so-called fantasy world, which is not a put down, but just another reality. And, and you've got that going here in such a beautiful way. And the fact that uh, Kumalo, what's his first name? Um, Mzi. Mzi, Mzi. And, uh, and Isla's, Isla works as a kind of foil to Carabo. I just can't imagine, I, I, these books have to get out into the schools, into the, especially the middle school, because I'm, I'm seeing a lot of middle school development here. There, there would be the tweens going into teenhood. I, I think that you would give them a lot of courage. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. I really kind of, that's, that's what I wanted to show was that like, we all have our stuff, you know, and, and, and we often say that very, very flippantly, but everybody does have a challenge. Whether we think that's challenging or not is irrelevant. The fact is that to each individual, we are going through something, some challenge. And to just show that it's okay to go through that um, and that you will come out the other side, not to let anyone kind of tell you your challenges less or more or, or anything like that but that it's okay you know you can you can go through your stuff and feel what you feel and you will kind of things will change and shift and you will move through it so yeah I, I think that kids do need to see that and they do maybe need to escape a little bit to to Africa you yeah. know um, and to not see that it's I, I don't know, you know, I never know what's shown overseas. There's there's so much bad that could be shown and uh, the good is hardly ever shown, right? So it would be just nice to share that Africa or South Africa is very much a normal place, you know? It's, right. And then yeah. the, the whole idea of, I'm, I, here I am standing in front of these, you're, I'm imagining myself standing in front of these kids, introducing them to, to your, your trilogy and I've got a map a world map, you know, I have to show them where, where South Africa is and yeah. what Zimbabwe, you know, and so that, that's, that alone is an opening up to the American audience. And that's why I'm so glad your books are going to be talked about. I know, I wanted to ask you this question. I think William, I, I love watching William and I, I'm, you know, I'm moving toward the third book and I'm, I'm realizing, and I looked at the synopsis, and I see he's going to change and he's going to be called on. And I think he's becoming one of my favorite characters because he's almost like the underdog. You know what I mean? And when you first meet him, it's like, <laughs> you know, and then, slowly, <laughs> you know, slowly you start seeing that he's plagued, you know, by the family feud or by, you know, what else mm -hmm. is going on in his world. And I just and the harshness of his father, you know, as, a, as, a, as his foil to watch him move out of that is just a beautiful thing to see, you know? And I think, I think that um, kids like to watch that kind of change in, in, in novels, in characters, you know? And uh, that's come up a lot in Lucas in the Game of Chance, my story, because uh, interviewers will say to me, well, what is it about him? And I said, I think it's his resilience, you know? And I think it's his, his, 
he, when he went out on that road, I mean, I'm not, you know, I don't want to take up our time doing this, but I mean, the fact is, just like William, he could have done this or this. He yes, could have choice. said, yeah, he could have said, I'm getting out of here. I don't care. I don't want to be, I don't want to be, a, I don't want to have a responsibility. Okay, everything was taken from me. Let it go. But instead, he says on that road, he goes before God, the spirits, the angels, whoever is out there, I'm going to I'm going to pursue this and I'm going to win back my family. I see William kind of like in that that kind of role, you know, and he's become my favorite character. But so that I asked you, what about you? Do you have a favorite character? (laughs) I know, and that that really is like saying which is your favorite kid. Hey, um, it's terrible. It's terrible. Um, I am. Oh, I think Carabo and William are probably my two my two favorites. I think because I could. <laughs> this is going to sound sadistic because I could torture them the most. I kept throwing stuff at them, and they kept bouncing back. Damn it! Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, in the second book, I don't want to give too much away, but I mean, Karaba's arm gets broken like in the first two pages, you know, and so, and she just bounces back. You know, it's, uh, it's really, them two would be, would be the most. Um, But, you know, the more I think about it, yeah, I'm so with you on William. I love, I love his growth. I love, love, love how he turns, how he becomes himself despite his father so and that's I suppose something that's really in there for for kids who maybe come from difficult homes that you don't have to be your parents you can be something else you know um you can be different you can be you uh you know often we kind of just swallow whatever comes and it's and I think you know he he represents that the best so so yeah I didn't give the children nice families except for Isla. Isla's got this like wonderful happy family that like live on a farm you know but she's like the only one the others have different families you know Karabo's mom is a single mom and uh, Mzee's mom is uh, uh, I think I might give it away if I say what happens there but you know so it's just to show that you can still be you find the right friends the friends that support you and um and you can really kind of come out of it. So, so yeah, I think Karabo and MZ, even though I dearly love Isla and, I mean, Karabo and William, even though I dearly love the other two. I know, I mean, it's our thing to do, to choose the best. It's a nasty question, but, but you know, you know, the, the interesting thing is when I'm listening to you, it's like, I hope that there are teachers who are going to pick up this interview because you're giving them a guide, a reading guide, a teaching guide by talking about, <laughs> really you are, by talking about so intensely how these characters live in your life. And the mm-hmm. fact that um, I, the fact that teachers would pick this up and they maybe not play the entire interview, but parts of it where you're talking about your characters coming into your life and, and your, your own children saying, you have imaginary children. That's really weird, mom. But I think that they will understand a lot. I mean, I'm talking about a skill level here that they will start understanding about the development of characterization and their own stories, that you can mm-hmm. do this, that you could open up the channels and develop characters that are dynamic and, and different 
you know, and uh, on on a journey, you know, I think it's it's, it's just great stuff. I hope I hope the they we develop some kind of uh, reading guide. I mean, at the back of the books, um, I've got it's I think it's in this this the second and the third book. Uh, or did I put it in the first book as well? Oh, I can't remember. But I put questions for book clubs and, you know, or maybe teachers to use. Uh, it was really just for fun. I'd seen it in those Enid Blyton books. Yes. And, and I was like, that's so clever. I wish I'd come up with the idea myself, but no. Um, Got to gotta give credit where credit to you. Yeah, that, that's good stuff. Uh, in America right now, this is Black History Month. Yes. Yes. And that. so you're getting there. Are, I mean, all over the place, you know. So I'm, 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 I'm hoping that uh, with with Rick Light, uh, my extraordinary book marketer, <laughs> that we can we can look our we can find our way into that market. There's um, an organization that's doing wonderful work called We Need More Diversity. Oh wow! It is. We need more diverse or more diverse books. We something like that. You look that up, and yeah. they're doing they're doing mentorships, uh, and they're doing uh, you know not only not only for black and brown but also diversity as as we can talk about it in the, the large yeah. sense of the word. So they also have mentorships, and then they do an award. They do awards with they which they just announced. So that's the kind of organization that I'd like to see your books go to. Um, awesome. I'd, I'd love to, yeah, that's the, that's where I'd, I'd love to kind of see, yeah, I almost wanted to show like, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be about skin color because, you know, inside we, we feel the same, you know, hurt feels like hurt, sadness feels like sadness. You'll all know about Madiba um, Nelson Mandela and how he spoke about us as a rainbow nation. Oh, it seems so long ago <laughs> with, our, yeah. with our corrupt presidents that we've had in between um, since he took over and now. But, um, you know, we still have those dreams of being a rainbow nation and of being people of all colors and creeds and kind of standing together as, as one. You know, I believe that that could still happen. It is still a possibility that, that we could have that. And so why not? And so, so then I place my characters in my books in whatever time that is, whenever that point is, that's when that will be. Yeah. That's terrific, yes. You, you talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but I'd like to talk about your team because <laughs> you, you say you're a self-publisher. What drew you to self-publication, first of all? So, especially with the Libertalia series, I was drawn to it because I'd actually started writing the teen books to enter a competition. And um, when I looked at it, it was going to be like a prize of like 10,000 Rand or something, which in USD is like less than a thousand dollars. Okay. And I was like, what? Really? Give me a break. I will do this on my own and I will, whether I do or don't make more money is actually almost irrelevant. The point is, is that I feel like my books are worth my time and effort. And so, so that really drew it to me in, in terms of kids books. It's tougher. Now I know it's tougher marketing kids books than I could possibly have imagined. Kids don't buy, parents buy. And so it's kind of like trying to get 
to a child, but to get to the parent to buy for the child. So it's very, it's it's a very diff, it's a difficult marketing um, strategy. So so it's been tricky. So my marketing brain has definitely been perplexed by this. Um, but in terms of my all the people that I use around me, I use um, contractors. So you know everyone is independent, and then kind of just pull in. Um, the best people for whatever I need and it's often a lot of people that are similar to me you know moms who work for themselves from home um, you know they've got other jobs on the go and it's 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 really nice because they understand the crazy work times and and all of that kind of thing so I I enjoy working with other talented people and um, yeah I hope they enjoy working with me who knows (laughs) In other words, but you also talked about working with an editor. Yes. Because yeah, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa's almost like a partner um, in the sense that I will write the book and then I'll go, right, (laughs) so done, amazing. And then she'll like go, she'll send me back this like red document. I know. know. Where it like it's got so much editing on it, it almost doesn't even open, or it takes like five minutes to like open. And I'm like, well, poor me. And then I'll like close it, and I won't look at it for three oh, days, yeah. and I won't speak to her either. And then I'll get over myself and go, okay, cool, right, yes, let's go for it. And then we'll start this process, and then we kind of bounce this document backwards and forwards, and backwards and forwards, and backwards and forwards. Um, and it's a it's a whole process, and it just like I always say, like the Libertalia books took about six months to write I was working really um fast on them um it was just I was in the zone obviously and then it took it like another six months to edit it it takes long but it's okay you know they they got out they they did so the editing does take a while and you know even now when I open my look at a sentence I'll be like oh my goodness I really should fix that I can still see stuff that's not quite right. So, so it is a thing um, that one does need to do. It's very important to have an editor or someone, a reader. There are very few. I even speak to authors who are published by big publishing houses and they, they are edited also, sometimes to within an inch of their lives. So it, it is critical. You know, no one writes perfectly first time. That's all very rare or doesn't even exist. I love that. I think it's so important for self-published writers to hear this, authors too, because there's kind of a um, disrespect, let's say, for when they hear self-published, well, anybody can do that. But then to, to examine the process and think of what you have to do to put, if you want the kind of quality, I'm always interested too in line by line editing. You know what I mean? Where they look at the actual structure of every sentence, you know, and I mean, mm-hmm. I, 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 that would drive me nuts to do. Although, yeah, I taught for many years in a university and my students wrote and they would say to me, I never had a professor put post-it notes all over my work to tell me, yes, I like this, or this is where you can improve. And I just thought, well, isn't, wasn't that my responsibility? But to do that for my own work, uh, 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 I can't do that. I need that other, I need that other voice out there, you know. So that's um, the story that I'm working on right now. I, I'm I, there's a, a company here called Bublish, 
Yes. Bublish, bublish.com. And they, okay. they offer self-publishing, but they also offer full service. So oh. if, you, if you need a developmental, if you need someone developmental who takes your ideas and you're saying, look, I got the story about my father and, I, and it's a, a conflict with me and my father. What do you think I should do with this? That's developmental. It costs. No, you have to pay yeah. for this. <laughs> but, um, but in the long run, it's worth it. You know, if you want to get the work out there, it's so important. I think we slipped into this next question, which is what kind of advice do you want to give to aspiring writers who say, I long to be a published author? Mm. So the first piece of advice is like, well, stop longing and start writing. I mean, so many people come up to me and will go, oh, I've got a book inside me. And I'm like, great, you should get it out. You know, <laughs> it's, um, it's about putting bum to chair and writing. You need to write the story until you've written it. Quite frankly, you've got nothing. So stop with the judgment. Stop with the, oh, but, you know, what will this one say? Or what will this one think? Or no, let it all go because you are judging something that doesn't exist in reality. So sit down, write your story, and then, then you can start worrying because now you've got something to work with. Now you've got something to take to an editor. Now you've got something for someone to read. Now you've got a product. Up until you've actually written it, there's nothing. So it's really very much about just allowing yourself to create. Don't take it so seriously. <laughs> just allow, you often read Stephen Pressfield's books, The War of Art. The War Stephen of Pressfield's Art. It's, it's a little, it's a thin book. Brilliant. I just got it on Kindle. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. It's that fight against procrastination. And, um, and he, he just expresses it so well. I would say start there and then listen to writing podcasts. That was also the other thing that I kind of, it really inspired me to self-publish. People like Joanna Penn and um, the oh. British authors. Are, yeah, they've got lovely podcasts. Uh, there's also the Write About Now. That's an American guy. There's, if you just put writing podcast into your kind of your Apple or your Google kind of podcast platform. There are so many and great for listening when you're commuting, when we go back to that sort of thing. So yeah, so listen to people who know what they're talking about, actually write whatever you want to write and then start thinking about editing it and working with it. And, but you've got to let the critique go away. As I mentioned, you know, like ter I'm a terrible speller, yeah, there's, there's things to fix that. There are editors to help you construct your sentence better. Yeah, and you've just got to be okay with other people digging inside your guts a little and just telling you to move this here and move that there. I, in fact, I want to share this story to show you. Like, this is now book number five. Mm -hmm. I wrote this book. Um, it's a new adult book that I've just written. And I thought we were done. I'd edited it through, like, majority of last year and then I thought that's it January is here we're going to lay this out send it to the designer she laid it out and then I thought right now I'm going to be like a real big girl and I'm going to send this to a few other authors and they're going to give me amazing like one-liner comments you know like you see on these like 
big published books, you know? Um, and I'm like, I'm going to have these amazing statements by like other authors. Oh, incredible. I can just see it. You know, there were stars and rainbows and unicorns. It was all coming together. And then <laughs> the one woman that I really, really admire, she's a South African author, uh, but she's a very successful author in the U S Joanne McGregor. Mm. And she came back to me and she said, uh, Mel, can we chat? And I was like, oh, oh here we go. Yeah. So she said, pull it up on your screen. And so I did okay. so like, oh. She was like, okay, you know what you need to do? I said, yeah, thank you very much, Joanne, I think. You know, and um, I've sent it to now a line editor. And so, um, and I've received the first chapter back probably about five days ago. And I still haven't opened the email, even though I said to her, thank you very much. But I just know it's going to be a ton of work. It's just a ton of work. I like the emotional stuff. I'm way beyond. I've edited this book so much. It makes me ill thinking about having to work any more on it. Sorry, that's my cat. But I, I have to do it. The, the fact was, once she showed me, it couldn't be unseen. I knew I had to fix it. And so I'm going to have to go. So back to the drawing board and, you know, you can kind of look at it as a failure or you can look at it as a, I'm going to invest. This is like putting myself on a writing course. Yeah. You know, I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that this will teach me in its own way, how to construct and write better. And so this book, which in itself was such a hard book, it's quite bitter and it's got ugly characters in it as in ugly personalities. And so it was a hard book to write. And now I have to go back in there and fix it. But it's from a structural perspective. So you kind of, you're learning, learning, learning. I think with writing, just coming back to, I suppose, what you were asking originally. Sorry, I did go off piece there. But that writing is this ongoing learning process. You're constantly learning and to be open to that. If you don't want to be um, taught, if you aren't curious about improving, then maybe writing isn't going to be great for you. You know, it's maybe just going to end up being a lot of self-flagellation, um, you know, and maybe, I mean, if you're going for the starving artist kind of oh woe is me vibe then maybe that then it's perfect then you can totally do it but if you know if you want to write for the love and grow yeah you need to be open to the fact that you're going to be critiqued mm -hmm. and it's not a bad thing it's yeah just ask the right people that's all that's right and and uh i i know that um one thing that I would mention is uh, for, for people who are aspiring is to get themselves into a writing group. That, yes. has, yeah, that has been enormously helpful for me. Um, mm. felt like, yeah, I felt like I was taking a course, you know, because these were, these were published writers. They were gentle in their criticism, but also they critiqued, you know, and yes. that's, what, that's definitely what I needed. Are you also then writing for children too? Are you continuing for teens and yeah, so um, I'm I'm a bit like um, uh, I I kind of <laughs> I I get excited by different things. I'm like a magpie. I want to very much carry on with the Libertalia series. So the the teens end where they now all are ready to go to university, 
And so they're going to be young adults. Um, and so I want to progress kind of maybe into kind of the young adult arena. And so I will take them there. So that is something I think either end of this year or next year, I will start working on that project. Um, for the moment, I'm working on a murder mystery. So it could, it doesn't really fit into cozy mysteries because it's for adults. And so there is dare I say, adulty stuff in it. And so I'm working on, on that a trilogy at the moment, which I'm having a lot of fun with. And I've set it in America, which is a thought experiment. I've set it in LA. And um, so I'm constantly online, like walking through the streets of LA. So, so that's going to be quite interesting, you know, just in terms of speaking to the US market. Um, you know, so wanting to try and see if I can, if I can capture that. And then I've got two other books that are sitting in the back of my head and I wish I had another six set of arms. That's the frustration in that. I wish I could write those books, but yeah, while I'm a part-time, what am I? Someone, I saw someone wrote something like part-time writer, part-time mom, full-time worker, definitely like vaguely part-time wife, um, you know, <laughs> shame, poor husband, he really gets the dregs, it's, it's tricky, but it's okay, you know, um, there's a wonderful book that I do want to encourage people to read, and I'm not even finished it yet, it's um, Elizabeth Gilbert's, I think it's called Big Magic, um, oh yes, I'm listening to it on Audible at the oh, moment, wonderful, yes, oh my goodness, just the way she speaks about how inspiration comes to you, and then like it knocks there and it's like, hello, let me in. I'm a great idea, you know, and then if you don't let it in, it eventually goes away and goes to someone else. Okay. And I just love that analogy. So I'm like clutching onto my other ideas. And I'm like, please wait for me. Please wait for me. I promise I'll come back. So, yeah. You'll well, see. I mean, that's so important for me to hear too. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm older. I'm old, <laughs> you know, and still, and, but I'm, I'm, well, I'm persisting interviewing you has been very inspiring to me because I mean you you're the way you're talking about your process and your characters you're just giving me some energy to get back to my story which is the one that I'm working on is the imposter and it's about identity theft wow uh, kind of well I guess it's in a way I'm thinking of it mostly like a medieval kingdom but it could be a little later than that but it's just it's just uh, a bad, bad situation that somebody follow, finds himself involved in. But because he understands the language of birds at an early age, he saved. Wow. And I probably just did a spoiler. <laughs> no, but that, no, no, no. There's a lot. There's a lot that is left unsaid. So, oh, but that sounds beautiful. Yeah, That's well, so I'm working beautiful. on. You know, it's it. You know how that is. I mean, you, you have to give yourself the confidence, and also you can't you can't let your ego get in the way. You can't no put yeah. yourself down. You know, because you don't think you're good enough or whatever. Just carry on, carry on. It has been a wonderful experience to talk with you. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that that you've given so much, and I think that people will want to find their way to your website. I'm going to have to spell it out. I'll spell that for you. It's M-E-L-I-N-A, Melina. And then Lewis is L-E-W-I-S dot com. How easy. 
Very so easy. You're going to find there an interview about the first book, Lost Fortunes. And that, that is in the Libertalia trilogy. You'll hear also, I loved the uh, having you talk about the emotional depth of After You Died. That, that was uh, very interesting to me. I mean, and also very uplifting. And then when I wandered through your website, and I, I asked you about this in an email, I happened upon a series of delightful stories, Sly as a Crocodile, The Secret We Keep, uh-oh, For the Love of Art. These are short stories yeah. that you, you penned. And I, I think people will be happy to to see that, you know, to read the uh, Yeah, please, yeah. I mean, they're for free, they're there on my website. Right, um, right. You know, you get a sense of my style. It's maybe a little um, kind of commercial for, for some, you know, it's not, but they were just little stories that we did. It was just a, a fun thing I did with a little local magazine. It's this tiny little magazine that kind of you get in your mailbox once a month. And um, I chatted to the owner and he was like, yeah, write us a few little stories. And I did. And it was it was such fun. So and then just shared them. So please, anyone can definitely go and read those if they like them. Well, wonderful. And I, I should also point out the recording of this wonderful interview <laughs> It will be in the media section of my website, anthonymannabooks.com. Manna is M-A-N-N-A, books.com. And it's called Writers on Writing Podbean Podcasts. Melina, awesome. thank you so much. Thank it's you. Been, it's, it's been a total pleasure. And, you know, we'll stay in touch. I know we will. Definitely. Uh, stay with it and good luck with, with all of your projects. And... We'll talk soon. So have have the wonderful rest of your day there in South Africa, and uh, thank you. And wish us well as we go through our Arctic vortex, which means that it's so cold here that you don't want to go outside. So anyway, <gasps> oh, I'm so sorry. No, I, I can't believe it. We we've got it's so beautiful and hot here. I don't yeah. know if that's a bad thing to say. Um, no, no, but... <laughs> we can deal with it. We, we'll just you'll just increase our jealousy. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. I'm so, so sorry. Take good care of yourself. And we'll, we'll Thank talk. you, you too, and thanks for having me on the show. I really well, appreciate my, it. My, my pleasure. Take good care. Yeah. Okay. Bye -bye. You too.